Welcome to the podcast. We're street smart, business smart, all kinds of smart people share their insights into the world of marketing, career journeys, and personal growth. So sit back and prepare to get enlightened with your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast where I bring you the best and brightest from the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career and life forward. Tribe, I am beyond thrilled to welcome my guest today, Brendan Brown, VP of Global Talent Acquisition at a little company we like to call LinkedIn. And he has the uncommon privilege of leading recruiting for the company that continues to completely redefine and transform the world of talent, LinkedIn. And he's been in recruiting for 15 plus years and has been fortunate to have had some amazing experiences working in markets across the globe from coast to coast in the U.S., across EMEA and throughout the world with incredible colleagues solving hard and meaningful problems. And we're going to dig into that. And today we're going to unpack his own career journey, how he landed his job at LinkedIn and pull back the curtain and how they hire and a ton more. Brendan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on, my man. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate it. Awesome. Good to be here. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And let's dig in, right? I mean, everyone's asking, like, how the heck did this guy get to where he is now? I'm sure that's a question. You know, how does someone get to the top at LinkedIn? And I'd love if you could just unpack a little bit and give everyone listening um, a background on your own personal career journey. Sure. Um, so just I'll, I'll rock it through it. So uh, I went just like I was saying before we jumped on air here. I went to Villanova University outside of Philly. I'm from Boston. Get out of school. Uh, I studied communications. I wanted to work in TV. I was uh, interning for free at a cable TV show. And uh, a family friend said, you'd be a great headhunter. I, di- I didn't know what the heck that meant at the time. Made some introductions. Um, a woman from the Bronx, New York, who had been a recruiter a long time, hired me working for an agency. Did that for a couple of years. absolutely positively hated it. I I was just, I mean, it was pure, just eat what you kill. It's, you know, you learn the roast, but you got to make it happen. It was a smile and dial. Totally. Totally. (laughs) I mean, it was just, it it was a grind. Um, And then from there, you know, she, she explained to me, this woman who who mentored me said, you know, you can go in-house and it's a little bit different. Uh, And I ended up getting a job, got a recruiting call to go to this company called Sapient that was effectively a startup based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, worked for them um, for five plus years. But after about a year with them in Cambridge, Mass, they said, hey, we need people to go out to California. Do you want to go? I like on the spot, I was like, yeah, I'll definitely go. I'd never been to California. I've never been west of Chicago. Uh, so went home and told my buddies who are my buddies to this day <laughs> that I was moving to California and they're just typical Boston guys. So like it's bizarre out there. It's a bunch of weirdos <laughs> on the West coast. <laughs> you know, what are you doing? So I left and, uh, and then get sort of into the Silicon Valley thing and then bounced around between, you know, up and down the West coast and spent some time up at Microsoft, et cetera. But I would say, so I went from, uh, uh sapient where I was for a long time, dot com bust hit. I worked for two years. I stopped everything I was doing recruiting, went to film school in LA and worked for for Dr. Phil. And I worked for Guy Ritchie's producer, one of his producers. So I was a little detour. Then I went to Microsoft, uh, worked four years there. 
And then about 10 years ago, I said, I'm going back to Silicon Valley and I want, my goal is to work for a successful startup. One startup that succeeds over those 10 years went to a startup uh, that did not do well, spent three years learning there and then came to LinkedIn. Big, biggest thing I would say, uh, just in terms of themes are, I, I take risk. I took a bunch of risks. I wish I had taken way more, way more. We could all um, say that. And I would say, just kind of just keep showing up. You know, I look at people that have ended up in like when I was earlier in my career, people that are in hugely impactful positions. I wonder that's like, how the heck did that person get there? Um, and I think a lot of it is commitment to sort of staying the course because opportunities, they will arise. The timing may not be exactly what you want, but it will happen. So some of it is just, the longer you stick with it, the more relationships you have, the more relationships you have, the more doors open. It's all about it's all about relationships. So if you don't mind rewinding for a little bit, and correct me if I'm wrong, 2004 at Microsoft, were you working directly for Bill Gates on that team? I, I worked, so it was when Bill Gates was actually still at Microsoft. I'm dating myself now, but he was a chief so software architect. He had 2004 again, if you really want to date it. Yeah, 2004, he was still a chief software architect. Um, and they called him the Bill G Groups. And it was Microsoft Research, which was, I mean, literally I was, I mean, I wasn't interviewing them, but I was meeting some of the best uh, computer scientists in the world. So it wasn't working like directly with Bill, but it was the groups that he was still managing directly. Um, and then he moved on from, from there. So that was super cool, incredible experience. I'd left Microsoft not planning to go back and now I work there again, which yeah. is uh, funny how things work out. And, was, and even though you didn't work directly for Bill, was there like a key learning that you got from his management style and approach specifically to hiring that you've taken with you throughout your career? Well, the, the, at Microsoft research, um, you know, anyone in, in academia, I mean, if we talk to any computer science department, say Microsoft research, they'd be like, oh, well, th there's a lot of reverence for it. Um, but what that really taught me was the value of relationships over the long haul. And that those relationships, like in academia as example, there it's such a community that my job recruiting there would be to call Adam, who's, who's known one of our researchers for 20 years. You make me the introduction, I talk to Adam. And the conversation is really, Adam, help me, like the field of whatever, the 50 best machine learning experts that are up and coming. Can we talk about them? Who are they? So it's it's a different type of recruiting and it's so based on reputation, so based on community. Um, so that was something that, that I took with me back to the earlier point is just as you build your network and community, one, you don't need to be calling those people all the time. You might call them once a year. You might talk to them twice a year which earlier in my career, I thought like, oh, networking, I need to be like calling Adam every month. I need to like, and that's awkward. What do I do? And then I came to realize also through some of the writing that Reed Hoffman, LinkedIn's founder has done that those types of connections sometimes are the most powerful. And I can attest to that. There are people I haven't talked to in four or five years that I contact. I'm like, hey, I'm thinking about moving to, to New York City and I really want to start a new chapter of my career there. Can you help me? Like it, people do help each other and you don't need to be talking to them constantly. Right. So that was a big learning. It's a, it's a, it's a farming analogy and it's a, it's a, it's an analogy that I use in recruiting all the time. It's planting seeds, watering them, yep. fertilizing them, nurturing them, harvesting. It's that whole process. That's an analogy I give. And I talk a lot of young people about the value of relationships. I mean, it's crazy. I'm, a, I'm literally, you know, approaching my 20 year point post-college and looking back on it, you know, 
all of my relationships and business, all my successes are predicated on relationships that I've had since day one. And yep. I just try to lead by example and show everybody. They're like, Adam, how do you get this client? How do you get that business? You don't cold call anymore. I go, no, I warm call. I, I reach back out to people. And again, you don't have to talk to them every single day, but it's maintaining a presence, maintaining some kind of relationship that'll pay dividends. So fast forward to, to LinkedIn. Um, did you interview with, with Jeff directly for your role? I did, yeah. How does Jeff interview? <laughs> um, if you don't mind, it, it, it was it was a blast. I mean, he's a very uh, he's a he's a visionary at the same time a very focused operator. And when I interviewed, I would say he was in a very strategic but highly operational mode. It was to you know scale the company. Um, I mean, he he just asked me like, "What's your dream job?" My answer to that was, "We hello, I'm I'm interviewing for my dream job." So I think he, <laughs> he appreciated that. Uh, I think we did a little bit of work at the the whiteboard talking about some some things. But he, uh, I think he really likes to understand who someone is and sort of what motivates them. Um, I mean, he's a really com compassionate leader, so I think he really tries to get into a little bit of like, how is this person going to align with our values and our, our culture? So part intense questioning and part you know, tell me why this is the right thing for you. And that's where I get into like this. Kidding me, this is a dream job for anyone recruiting. I mean, we're talking 10 years ago, right? It's been 10 yeah. years, you know, what, yeah. much different company. It wasn't owned by Microsoft. You know, it was yeah. still an up and comer. It was still viewed as maybe, I mean, I hate to use the expression like a second tier social platform or the the resume and job board platform. I mean, that's how people yeah. look at it. And now it's it's come such an incredibly long way in, in, in so many years. Did you have that vision yourself when you joined? Like what, what was your kind of mindset at, you know, 10 years ago? I mean, it, the, coming into TA at LinkedIn is, and we talk about ourselves as customer zero, just because we like, we are the customer. Mm -hmm. And I tell, and I tell you as Love a customer, it. tell anyone that like, Hey, any feedback you give me on the product, I give right to the product team. Any, any complaint I have for the product team, it's on behalf of all my fellow recruiters out there. Um, so the, you know, the broader vision is one that I definitely attach myself to. We spent a lot of time very early on, we call it, it's a storyteller training. It's a two day training to get people to really tell the LinkedIn story, which is about creating economic opportunity. And that as a recruiter, it's a good message to, to it's super fun to tell that story. Um, so I wouldn't say like, you know, the vision, I, I definitely didn't create the vision, but in terms of building and expanding uh, on the vision, those are things that just that thinking allowed me to do to build apprentice programs, other things that ladder up to that. Yeah, I love it. And I saw that firsthand at Talent Connect. There was a whole piece on, you know, the economic opportunity. And uh, I mean, I talk about it all the time. It was kind of this surprise and delight moment where I think it was a head of product. I forgot who it was. Said, or is it Jeff himself who said to reach under your seat? And then yeah, underneath, Jeff said that, yeah. it was Jeff, and underneath the seat, there was three passes for everyone there to pay forward um, a premium account, which was absolutely incredible for all of us to have that opportunity to help somebody else who may not be in that economic position to help themselves with a LinkedIn product to expand their career. So I saw it. it firsthand and like, I still get the chills thinking about that moment, right? There was like a collective energy, right? There was a collective surprise. And then once everyone kind of put the pieces together and saw what it was all about, that now we had the power in our hands to action yeah. what Jeff was talking about. I mean, that was magic, man. I mean, yeah. The, was, I mean, the, 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 we talk about the network app and, and it's the idea that, I mean, I mean, think, think about the people that might randomly reach out to you that need some type of help cognitively they're the same as a person might've gone to an Ivy league school. Like there's no different in, in raw talent, but that person who literally has no, like has no network um, is in this network gap. And there's such a habit that's built of 
many of us, all of us, like, you know, I, I could point to many jobs I had because I was privileged, born into privilege, and then had privilege network that got me opportunity. But there might be someone who needs s some way to bridge this network gap. So something that I've been trying to do is, it, am I answering those those outreaches and, and am I, am I creating those opportunities for people? Because those people who don't have a network gap fall between the cracks of, of a network and are afforded the same opportunity. So I think that's an example of a role that LinkedIn can absolutely play. I mean, 100%. I think back to when I applied to my first jobs on campus at Villanova, like put my resume in a slot like a wooden slot <laughs> yeah it was, it was crazy a physical um, job board <laughs> so the you know boundaries have been have been knocked down and there's more access but i think there's a long way to go to close the network up yeah and i think that really is a great transition to the next part of our conversation we're talking about current events and 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 how linkedin itself is really could is in a position to help Right. And we yeah. talk about closing that network gap, and that's a, a step that I'm helping to take as well. Using my network, you know, I have a great presence. I have a great network as well, too. So really helping out, you know, anyone, regardless of your skin color, but especially now more than ever. And I want to talk about something that is extremely important innate to LinkedIn, which goes by the acronym DIB, which is diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And with talent priority being the number one operational um, priority at LinkedIn, you know, how more than ever, especially right now, and we're recording the show on the 16th of June, uh, it'll probably air in a couple of weeks from now and, you know, everyone can pinpoint to current events. But let's talk a little bit about, you know, before two weeks ago, you know, how LinkedIn was operating under this mindset and what has changed. Yeah. If anything. <clears throat> yeah. As, as much mean, as you're I'm, open I'm, and willing to share, of course. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'd, I'd speak just to, to my own sort of values on things. I mean, I stand against racial injustice. I stand against hate. I stand against racism. Uh and I, I think all these things need to, to stop immediately. 100%. Um, in terms of LinkedIn and diversity, inclusion, and belonging, so that was a term coined several years ago. So that it's it's not attached in terms of its origin. It's not it's new. It's not a it's new not thing. New. It's not reactionary. It's not reactionary. And, and it was, I mean, diversity, people have in the corporate ranks of HR have heard about and participated in and helped move the dial to the degree that they can. Inclusion, the same thing. The thinking is uh, and has been that diversity and inclusion are necessary but not sufficient. Uh, belonging needs to be there. So if you think about diversity, diversity, just to boil it way down, would be looking at like what, it, what is the mix, actual mathematical mix of, of the talent on a given team and a given organization? Uh, is it statistically diverse? That's absolutely necessary. Uh, Inclusion would be sort of, okay, we've got a diverse team. Inclusion is, did you get the email to show up to the meeting? Uh, and have you been included? That's absolutely necessary. Belonging is makes all of it come together in that diversity inclusion. Yes, a diverse team got the invite. I might show up to the meeting. I feel like I don't belong. I want to get the heck out of there. Right. I don't feel like right. I can participate. I'm not going to open my mouth. I move up in there value. some <laughs> some level. And then with people of color and diverse talent, I mean, there's all sorts of studies that say the percentage of your brain that gets occupied with the fact that you don't want to open your mouth dominates your thinking in a meeting mm -hmm. like that where you feel like you don't belong. You're not going to, you can't be yourself. You can't add the value you would like. So belonging is the idea to create an environment where people feel like they can, can be themselves. So that's why dibs became the sort of triumvirate of diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Um, 
And there's been that that has been our number one talent priority. We rolled out the Rooney rule a few years ago. We iterated on it. Um, we have a diver, diverse slate commitment, which has made a lot of impact. Um, that's not new. Uh, I started something called Ramp, which is an apprenticeship program, which is the idea that you can have a good career in recruiting and a lucrative career at that and never have, doesn't matter if you dropped out of high school, like it's, it's a learned skill. Um, and back to the network gap, what if we created a program where we can take people who don't have access, get them in a program to teach them recruiting. Hmm. We, we do it for several quarters in the idea that someone hopefully can transition to a full-time role. But the goal is over 10 years to have a thousand people go through that program, not just through LinkedIn, but have Adam Posner be someone who's a professor at the program, friends that are in recruiting at other companies participate in this entire community-based apprentice program to, to literally down the road, like literally change the way recruiting and tech looks. Um, so, the, so a lot of the things we've been doing, you know, were priorities before 2020. Um, I, I think God, no, sorry. I was gonna say, and, and I think, you know, current, current day, I mean, I think it's, it's not enough. Like we, you know, you know, we need to do, all do more. So as a recruiting organization, I've been talking with my team about what conversations do we want to have? We talk about influence and advising, like how much truth telling do you want to do? How, how much do we want to push? Because I think we need to, to push in a tactful way. We need to bring data to the table, things like what geography should we go to, to really expand our ability to hire a diverse talent? How hard should we push on a true remote work strategy to change our ability to hire people where they are versus moving to a major expense? So things like that everything's are changing. It's crazy. Yeah, everything's changing. So I, so I would say things are evolving. I think we're also, I'm, I'm thinking about how do I use my voice more and where and how and when. Um, so it's it's an interesting interesting time. I think we've pointed a lot of the the right things, but I think we need to just turn up the volume in a big way. No, and I love it. And and it's not LinkedIn's just not talking the talk, but walking the walk. And I've seen that. So something that I've been thinking about even before current events right now is this concept of unconscious bias in recruiting. And I will be straight up. I could say that there has been times in my career, right, and maybe look on it, back on it, that I've been biased on looking at resumes, looking at candidates, and subconscious, there's things that you don't see, like you're implying thoughts based on a name, on a geography. How generally speaking, and I'm not talking just specifically at LinkedIn, what are things and steps and ideas that we could do to remove this unconscious bias in talent acquisition? Well, these are, I mean, these are just riffing on on ideas. These, are, these aren't things that like we're, we're doing at scale today. Um, I mean, one, one thing we, we are doing, we've got a, a project that we've launched that's gained a lot of momentum, which was giving someone the ability to just just have the freedom to develop the basic qualification, the skills for basic qualifications as part of the process. So like, and if you can develop it through some learning, could be LinkedIn learning, through some assessments you could take to say, yeah, I now have that and I'm now kind of a qualified candidate. So that's that's one idea. I have heard of uh, companies doing um, anonymous interviewing where I was names talking about are that moved. with a friend yesterday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you know people have heard, probably heard the story of like symphonies where they, they interview right. players or whatever, but they they don't want to hear the shoes that they're wearing. That when they walk out, all sorts of things that could give away. Is it a man? Man? Is it a woman? Uh, I think there's some some merit to those things uh, for sure. I think with more and more remote work, that might even become more of a priority for people to figure out. Like, yeah. Um, 
those are a couple. About, it's about leveling the playing field. And and it's tough. And it's, it really comes down, in my opinion, to values within an organization. Listen, we all have, you know, we, we're all somebody else outside of work. But when we come into work, we're all on the same team. Yeah. Right. And what does that look like, you know, you know, from a value perspective? And then it's another conversation I've been having with my clients. And it's a really tough one because ultimately a company wants to hire the best person who's qualified for that job regardless. And then you layer on, you know, ensuring, you know, DNI and everything. And sometimes it becomes a little gray and sometimes it becomes a little tricky. And those are difficult conversations to have. And I think that's really what this time is. It's about being open to having those difficult conversations. Um, and I can only assume right now in your position, you're having many of these, and I'm not asking you to unpack any of them, but like, you know, is that energy there? Are people like being more willing to have these type of talks? Uh, well, I, I think absolutely people are open to it. I mean, I think we've got some incredible leaders who are very open to it. I think we as recruiters know the recruiting process and that's where we should, where we should press. Um, and I think, you know, I think a lot of companies should think about their, either their users, their customers, their members, whatever, whatever type of business they're in. I mean, my feeling is if we want to serve an entire market, the, the entire market is diverse. So if we have a bunch of the same people building the, this product for 50 different types of users, isn't that a problem with our development process? And then therefore, like, who's actually driving the development process? Let's take a look at that. So would, wouldn't we be better served to have a broader perspective building our products to, if we want to really truly be successful? So I think there, there are things like that that I think recruiters need to even speak up on that even a little bit out, outside of, like, sourcing and hiring but like who's who's going to build our products who are these human beings what are their backgrounds and what are we trying to build um it reflects it reflects the the, the employees are the fabric and the quilt of the organization right when you talk about culture and when you talk about the product and your and your 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 feelings and who you are and your values it translates into the into the final product Right, whether question. it be physical, physical, it could be. It doesn't always have to be tangible. So let's dig into our craft of recruiting. And before we do that, you know, I saw you quote somewhere that said, you know, leading recruiting for LinkedIn, LinkedIn is the best job in the planet on the planet, right? I mean, how does that, how does that feel every day, right? Like when you like, and, and people always say like, if if you love what you do, it's not going to feel like work, right? Well, I mean, the the part of the joy I get out of is having been like smiling and dialing back in the day and understanding, I mean, I, I, li I literally would contact someone who I didn't know. I didn't even know it was a real name who would send me photocopies of information. I probably shouldn't have like names and numbers. I mean, anything to get names and numbers. It was like, this is a, this is a golden. I had these things stacked in my garage for years and years until it's like, I, I know you're using, I, I, you're using a fax machine. You were there. I mean, totally. <laughs> I, I mean, so, so even when I got to LinkedIn, never mind right now, but the ability to do things with data, I mean, it sounds cliche, but it's freaking mind boggling yeah. to be able to walk into you as a high manager, say, Adam, I, this is a real example. Go into our head of engineering when recruiting is getting a lot of pressure, getting hammered by, all, we all know the pressure. Of course. Um, and just brought data to that to him and said, hey, look, we really need systems infrastructure engineers. I, I just quickly sized up that market, the 2,000 best people that your, you your VPs mm -hmm. agreed to. Yeah. 699 of the 2,000 know you and your organization personally. Right. Okay. Let's, let's look at the yeah. relationship. Let's triangulate it. Let's see who knows who. And let's figure out the best way to, to get to those. Totally. So, so how, how about those that you own those? Like, I don't even want recruiting going after them. We'll mobilize you. 
will we'll get you moving. And we knew statistically, because we tested it, that when that happens, the response rate goes from about 28% to 85%. So stuff like that is just like, this is just fun. I mean, it's just fun. You're just trying to figure out how to influence and get the results we want. And I'm smiling right now because I literally had this conversation with one of my clients the other day and we identified, we, we mapped the target, right? We mapped, we mapped our target audience here. And I said, look, you're connected to, th you're connected to their second, first or second connections to already 40 of these candidates. I'm like, just reach out to them. And when yep. a CEO or, or a key decision maker reaches out versus a recruiter, it's much more impactful. Right, these candidates are getting hammered all day long by recruiters, whether it be yep. by emails, whether it be by all these like third-party platforms that are hacking your email and you're getting crazy emails to your work. No one wants to get an email to their work address. It's it's so invasive. So let's talk a little bit about you know how LinkedIn recruits. And I am only assuming here that like listen, I'm sure there's some jobs that even LinkedIn has difficulty filling. Right, these are yep. either highly specific, um, you know, specialized niche, certain geographies, and so forth. But like, you know. How does LinkedIn generally like like you know what's the process here? What are some of the the, the secrets of LinkedIn's own recruiting? Um, I mean the, the the processes vary by like you know the sales org has a different process than the the engineering organization, but a big a big step in the process would obviously be use data to size up market. So what I what I care like baseline principles are as a recruiter: Do you know your TAM, your total addressable market? Like, I don't care how many people are in the process. Like, do you actually know quantitatively the size of your addressable market, be it in your major metro that you live in, the state, whatever the right size of the geography is? Okay, do you know that? And then have you segmented that in a way, meaning what percentage of those people know people at LinkedIn? And this is all in the in the, in LinkedIn Recruiter. Like, you of can get course. this data. I mean, it's so, not that hard once you figure out how to use Recruiter. I mean, it's all yeah. searchable and So searchable. it's all there. And, and so a lot of that is – that is an easy entree to go back to hire manager and have a conversation like we were just talking about, which is like, hey, 700 of the 2,000 people know your organization. 200 of them applied to positions in the past mm -hmm. year. 500 of them follow our company. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a branding and marketing campaign to those that have some affinity, but just a little bit. The ones that we we know directly, we're gonna have a one-to-one -one campaign. So yeah, and it's not hard to do. I mean, it's not hard to do this stuff. So that's sort of the baseline stuff. Um, and then a big component of what we do is storytelling. We spend two days training every single recruiter on how to tell the story. And that to me is, I feel like most recruiters, I contact you. Hey Adam, it's Brendan from xyz.com. Great company. We got a bunch of venture capital. We're growing like mad. How much Java experience do you have? Like that effectively is the story, which that person should never recruit again in their life because no. that is not a story. So a big belief is like you need to capture the imagination of candidates to the point that they just can't help themselves. They get off the phone. They go tell their girlfriend, their boyfriend, their spouse, their friends. I just had this crazy conversation. So, so that's a big step in the process that I think most recruiting teams fail um, yeah pa pause on that for one second because i say sure. this i say this all the time and i say this to my clients and i say to recruiters that i'm working with in training i go your recruiter is your brand ambassador they are the first point of contact for any potential new employee 
who's going to join your organization. So they exactly, as you said, they have to be able to articulate the story. They have to do it effectively. They have to do it compassionately and they have to be able to answer as many questions as possible immediately, right? They have to understand the values. They have to understand the direction. Now there may be some pieces of information they may not know. And we're talking about in-house recruiters and also, you know, let's be honest. And I, and I say too, if you're working with a contingency recruiter on the outside, you want to work with a contingency recruiter who's going to be able to properly articulate and tell your company's story. Yeah. Without, Hundred percent. Right? And, and thank you. And thank you for verifying that. I'm literally going to take this clip and I'm going to send it to my clients and say, "Yes, I was onto that." Right? It, you know? I mean, <laughs> I, I would I would say it's one one maybe it's one of it's it, it might be the m most overlooked thing that that I see in recruiting because for some reason people think they need to jump into like three sentences on the company and then I'm going to qualify you. Right. I'm I'm big, I'm big, yeah. You, you got to blow my mind, man. Like you want my time and attention. You better be coming with something that's going to blow in this my day mind. Age and in this market. Absolutely. Um, um, and, and that, you know, there's, there's all sorts of other, we do a lot of training on that. And then actually uh, at one of the talent connects, I talked about the science of storytelling and it's not, there's, oxytocin gets released in the brain, like chemicals mm -hmm. get released in the brain. When you tell a good story, you're going to have a bond with candidates that other recruiters won't. So it's something I think is, uh, is definitely whether you're contingent in house, it's something that I think is overlooked. Uh, absolutely. And then when we talk about the candidate experience as well, too, I mean, I have to think that you're hyper focused on that. Exactly. I mean, the touch points, I mean, we're talking in a day and age where, where we're doing everything, I mean, remotely on our side here in New York, yeah. San Fran and, and Silicon Valley, and most of your offices are under that still kind of premise of lockdown. But what is that general, I mean, we're not going to break it down. We don't have five hours right now, but like for the candidate experience, but like, what is a general uh, guiding principles as far as how LinkedIn approaches candidate experience? Yeah, I mean, the, well, the the general thesis is similar to storytelling. Our goal is to blow your mind, and it's it's not just all you know. It, it's real experience. I mean, there's some fun stuff too. Yeah, so not just all water if, bottles and t-shirts. No, no. It's just, we, we want great, someone. I have a great glass water bottle too. I got, I love it. <laughs> and, and, and we'll do that. We want someone to feel like they're, they're understanding the culture. So there's uh, you know things when we were, you know, back on campus and we now do these virtually through different, um, some video work we're doing, but like get the heck out of the conference room. If Adam's coming to visit and for five hours, if we have you in a walk conference room, that's ridiculous. Go so you know, one, fully immerse someone. Two, feature your product in some way in the candidate experience. Obviously, it's super easy for LinkedIn. I can call you and be like, hey, our product's got us connected. But if you make servers, if you make furniture, like, I mean, there's ways that I think people also overlook in the candidate experience. If you're not drawing someone in to understand your product, even if it's just a straight up demo, but you know, I saw Spotify do something really cool. They're hiring a head of listening experiences, and they made this really cool personalized listening listening experience for the candidate. For the I'm candidate. like, I've seen that's this. pretty pretty darn smart. Okay. Um, so things like that are things. Put them we into need the experience. Put them into the product. Put them into the product. If it's that, if it's that, if it's that type of product. Yeah, uh, and make sure they understand how the company works. Get a feel for the culture through walking around. And then, I, then in terms of follow-up and follow-through, I think speed of process matters. We look at time in process. We look at a bunch of metrics, but that's what I'm always interested in. Adam started the process today. What, to what, how long does it take us to get to the point where you know whether you're moving forward or not? If we right. can do that really quickly, the experience tends to be good. Um, and then in terms of turning people down, we measure everyone that interviews, so whether we hired you or not. 
and the thing I'm most concerned about is those that we don't hire, what type of NPS are they giving us? That's and what one challenge we've laid out, we've never done, well, we might've done it maybe one quarter, was the NPSs for those that we offer, usually are a little bit higher, that net promoter score for those that we turn down a little bit lower. But what, could, what would you have to do to have them be the same? Hmm. Meaning like the people we turn away, could we have a better experience for them? Yeah, like so how how are they yeah. supposed to feel? How are they supposed to feel not getting? And there's different levels of that too. There's everything from simple job application, you know, yeah, past totally. that, all the way to final round, and you're getting passed on for another candidate because that happens all the time too. Yeah, right. And I always tell people, I go pick up the phone. Simple as that. People yeah. want. It's about. It comes down to managing expectations. Totally. Right, and closing that loop. All totally. somebody wants to know is at any point in that journey, where do I stand? What does timing look like, and what are my expectations? The, I, I, I tell the, I tell the team there is a, a job that I interviewed for uh, at one point, and uh, I really thought I was going to get it, and <laughs> I didn't get it. Uh, but it was a Friday at four o'clock, and their CEO was calling me to tell me the results of the interview. And like I had dinner with the guy, like I was like, "This is, I'm in," and I didn't get the job. But you know it. It probably was a five minute call, maybe, maybe three minutes, but it nailed exactly what you're saying. He called me when he said he was going to call me. The interview process had just concluded a few days prior. He let me know his decision. He offered me ways he could help me going forward, which he did. Three Amazing. minutes, maybe five minutes. And I've, I mean, that was years ago. I remember this day. I was like, it takes five minutes. He didn't have to do that. He could have like had some HR person call me and let me go. So there are these small things around candidate experience, I think, that matter. And then when it comes to closing, I always feel like, who do you need in the process? You need, you need our CEO? No, he does, he's too busy. No, that's not the right attitude. Whatever we got to do to get this deal closed and create the right experience, right. go create it. So try to have a, a sense of urgency and a, a feeling of we want to blow someone's mind. What are your thoughts, right? And I kind of have this conversation all the time too with hiring managers too. The, they, you know, they play the uh, the Goldilocks too hard, too small, too soft, yeah. right? Like not right. Like I always say through the process, and it's kind of like a rule of thumb. If you're interviewing somebody and it feels right in your gut, and they're checking at least 80, 85 percent of those. I hate to use the word boxes, but as far as those, those actual skills that they need for the job, and all the soft skills are there, you make the hire. Yeah, right. You, you make the hire. What's kind of your thoughts on urgency and timing? In terms of how quickly to make a hire, right? Like if, if if someone feels good and they're they're not a ten out of ten, but they're like eight or nine out of ten, and they just feel right and they feel like a good fit, like because I always find that to be tough with different hiring managers. Some I, hiring I mean, managers, like they may say, "Hey, I I I think this guy is, or girl is great. Their fat lady is great. They're fantastic." But I want to see four more candidates to make sure. Well, I guess in terms of the. Um, in terms of hiring manager, I mean, there's a little extra, and I might have a vi even a video on this I could send you. So, really? so, so, so one in terms of time. It's on LinkedIn I mean, Learning, it, everybody. Let's do a plug there. Anyone I got it. Exactly. Learning. I got to get my, my little course on there. But, it, but in terms of time, you know, that's one where hiring managers come out of the woodwork. Oh, it's taking too long. There's an exercise we do where like, hey, all right, Adam, the hiring manager, let's get up at the whiteboard or the virtual whiteboard. Here's a, here's a marker. You said you'd have the job description. You don't like just even around. You don't have the job description done. You said you'd have it done last Friday. Now like we're when, ten days when later. Can you, yeah, exactly. And then Who's right on the whiteboard. Yeah, seven days. Okay, so we're seven days in. Okay, um, we need to do some sourcing, some calibration. That's going to take a week, and I need you to get back to me. So you just start charting out what the. You mean the fact you don't that have candidates available for me right away? That's exactly. Why, <laughs> what do you mean you don't have five candidates that are interested like within two days? <laughs> 
So there's a lot of education like that that I think we all forget to do that we sit around thinking about it, but hiring managers don't. So I want to set at least a timetable and tell them either the, the timing or the number of candidates. Once we have four candidates, Adam, that go through the whole process, we will make a decision unless there's a major problem. So four um, is kind so, of a rule of thumb, like four I candidates, mean, like four like down the road in the process. Somewhere between probably four and six that make it through okay. the whole process feels really good to me. I agree. Um, and then in, in terms of someone who's like, yeah, they're 80% there, I would suggest seeing some more candidates as long as within a reasonable time frame. And then I, I also think that, hey, that person's 80% there. I'm not really sure if you know this person's right. My bias is to go tell them. Don't say, you're, hey, you're not right, but just say, you know, here's just be as transparent as you can to give someone the opportunity to respond. I mean, I'm sure I've interviewed people that I should have asked them one more very transparent question, even if it's a concern, to give them an opportunity to say, hey, I'm glad you're bringing that up. You know, I've been working on that or, you know, I actually have done some of that work. So I do see those things where people may even not make the hire because they haven't said what needs to be said. They haven't had an open, honest conversation with the candidate. Right. And that's a, that's something that I talk about with candidates, too. And I, I, I used to and kind of still do give the advice at the end of an interview to say, hey, Brendan, thank you so much for taking the time to interview me. I really appreciate it. Is there anything, you know, that, you know, important to this job, imperative to this job that we have not discussed in my background? Is there, do you have any additional questions? And kind of because sometimes at the end of the interview, the interviewer is ready to like to go they're looking at their clock or their mind is somewhere else. Like, yeah. how do you, you know, you have to keep them focused. And, and I, I think that's a great idea. And it's another question too. What kind of training do you work with hiring managers for consistency and accuracy uh, for accurate, you know, assessment of each candidate? I mean, we, we have interview training. It's largely behavioral based interview right. training. We have unconscious bias training. Um, we have inclusive leadership training, all things to, to make sure that we're uh, fair and equitable in, in our processes. And, and then, you know, in, in certain functions like in engineering I mean, we, there's a lot of consistency around the types of types of questions that are asked to just to make sure that there's some consistency in the process where i think is paramount when it comes to interview and, and assessment but you know i think i i think those things always need to be looked at on a recurring basis to one make sure that they're fair and equitable but also you know i, I think the research i think google did the research that i don't know what the number was no more than five, like after the fifth interview or something, it's it, the, the return is minimal. It's a diminishing return on it. Yeah. Just so, so I have a lot of questions on if someone has for certain jobs has the skills, like it's undeniable, like either you know how to work the algorithm or work the machine or whatever, you, you know how to do the skill. And then you need to assess on maybe values alignment that shouldn't take like 10 hours. So a I think people, I, a couple different feelings. I think it's still, I think the process is still flawed over. Like I'm talking at large in the world of work, mm -hmm. there's gotta be faster, better, more equitable ways to, to interview, particularly when it's, you can say, I have the skill. I mean, you, you can't deny that I can do this work. Yeah. And, and how is, you know, you know, everything going on with COVID right now and who knows about the future of work, who knows when we're returning to physical, you know, working together again, you know, how did LinkedIn respond to this? How did you adjust this overall process, the TA process of people coming in and what effects have you seen from it? Positive and negative. That's a good one. Uh, it was a fire drill for sure. When, you know, all I hands was, on uh, back. yeah, I was, 
I was on I was on a road trip and it was like eleven o'clock at night and was on conference calls driving in the dark and it was because we were trying to switch all our interviews like the next day uh, to online. So it was it was a rapid move to to virtual interviewing and I think it went it went well. We this is another place where we really watched our net promoter scores to see like and, and interestingly it, they went up in the people that we declined uh, that we interviewed virtually actually bumped higher than we've seen that. So that was interesting. It, it was really interesting. Um, so I'd say it's, it's gone, it's gone well. I think there's more improvement we can make back to the point of, we don't want it to just be okay and sufficient. We want it to be really special experience. So I think we can always strive to do right. more. Right. And it's how do you, how do you integrate more technology? What point yep. is a video? Is a video every point? So it's more of that, that human touch. Like how is this going to work? Right. And, like, and there's so many unanswered questions. And I think it also takes, um, some empathy and understanding on the candidate candidate side as well too, right? I think there's yeah. some responsibility there because we're all going through this together, right? At no point ever in the history of the world has everyone like kind of been on the same page where we're all figuring this out, we're all in the same boat, and we just need a little patience from everybody. And I think I think hopefully we're at that point. Million dollar question here: What is the secret trick to getting a job at LinkedIn? What is the secret trick to getting a job at LinkedIn? Is it like a backdoor email resume? Do you go right to El Jefe, Jeff himself? Well, not Jeff anymore. I mean, we got Ryan in there. Yeah. Um, you know, how, how do we? Ryan was great, by the way. Side note, I invited him to our original live event, by the way, too. And he saw it. He's like, oh, that's pretty cool, too. So he did see it. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. He's engaged. Uh, Ryan, I like it. He's a he's a product genius. There's no question. Um in in terms of how do you get okay there, 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 right? like, what's, what's the best approach to kind of get this is through? what i would say and i would i would say it applies to not just linkedin it just applies to anyone wanting to use linkedin to find a job the amount the amount of differentiation you can create for yourself as a candidate in today's world is is unusual i mean it's it's unbelievable frankly so I'd say if you really want to get a job, be it at LinkedIn or any other company, like you're serious about you want to get a job there, slow down. I mean, you probably know more than me. I mean, you, you live in the world of, of content. A, you can create your own content. B, you can showcase the work you've done on your LinkedIn profile or otherwise. Oh, yeah. C, you could interview someone. And I mean, you, like it's a, such a blank canvas where – if you, if you can either demonstrate skills that you want to be hired for, create a d differentiated reputation around yourself, or simply get in touch with people who can help navigate you into a company, those three things, there's no barriers to doing those things. I think the biggest barrier at times for people is either they're too busy or slow down. Or then I'd say if, if you can do those first two things, then the next question would be like, well, how bad do you want it? You know, like if you really want a, a dream job at BMW, it may not happen right away, but there's a lot of opportunity for you to, to do more than just hit apply. So, you know, I would draw attention to yourself in a positive, tasteful, meaningful way related to the job. I mean, I can't tell you how many times people have done really cool things, either about LinkedIn or related to LinkedIn, thrown it up on the feed. And then Jeff would zip the thing over to me in an email and be like, check this thing out. And immediately we're like, this is awesome. Right. Let's at least reach out to this person. So, I would say slow down and realize that there's a lot of doors that you can open on your own or at least begin to open on your own. And what if I told everybody listening right now that this is my door opener into my potential job at LinkedIn? Think about that for a minute. Ah, 
Very meta. Think about that for a yeah, minute, yeah, everybody. Yeah. No, seriously, we'll, we'll think about that for a minute. So let's shift gears to some fun stuff here, uh, Brendan. Now, when you're not at work, when you're not at LinkedIn, a family man, how many kids? One, two kids? I have one, yeah. You have one kid yeah. right now uh, into music, DJ, playing instruments. So DJ Blue, where did that come about, first of all? DJ Blue, uh, probably. I love DJ names. DJ names are great. Probably started because my wife and her friends have called me Blue for a long time, and then it just sort of evolved into DJ Blue. But yeah, I, I DJ a little bit. I make beats. I play a lot of guitar and stuff and, and try to stay as creative as possible. What would you say your core musical influences are? Whew. Oh, my gosh. I mean, there's so many. I mean... Any 80s and 90s hip hop, like across the board, I can, anyone wants to talk shop. Are you East I can, Coast I or West Coast, it. though? I grew up in Boston, so it was a lot of East Coast. Um, what was like Onyx? Is Onyx from Boston? Was Onyx? Remember Slam? Yeah. I don't know why that came to, It just like literally, it's one of those things that just came to mind. Yeah. But I mean, like, House of Pain was from Boston, late, right? House of Pain was not from Boston. No. California. They were, yeah. they were West Coast? Oh, for some reason. Uh, um, there, so so their big other big influences are like all sorts of James Brown funk kind of stuff, uh, Parliament funkadelic, all yeah, George Sly Clinton's and Stone. fantastic. Oh yeah. man, Landing so of the, the Mothership Man, oh, yeah, that stuff better. is big. And then, I mean, I mean, it's just so many different musical tastes. So I'm into like singer songwriter stuff, I'm into classic rock. Um, Love so those it. are probably some of my my bigger influences. And how do you, do you like play music around the house? Like how are you infusing that into your kid? I mean, we've got a little studio. He plays the drums. Oh, awesome. Um, so. How old is he? Uh, he's 13. So if, if, the strategy oh, yeah. there is to not be like, hey man, you got to go practice the drums. <laughs> then I'll just go in there and just start playing the guitar and then he'll hear it and, sh and we'll show up and we'll start playing. That's awesome. So yeah, just it's it's a way to unwind and it's a way to just stay creative. And how do you balance it all, man, right? And I always love talking to, you know, accomplished senior level executives, right? I mean, I, I assume you're on the clock pretty much all the time. You know, it's a 24-7 job. But like, you know, how do you separate? How do you make sure that you're, you know, giving everyone enough, Brendan? It's a good question. Um, try really hard to take, take care of myself. I mean, my goal this year was to, to be... <laughs> uh be as flexible as i can literally so i do i do literally about 15 or 20 minutes of yoga probably about four times a week which like if you told me this a couple of years ago I'd be like that's that's ridiculous i'm like why would i do that why would i do that that makes no sense i would just go for a run um so i'm doing that and then trying to keep really clear that uh no matter what happens everything's going to be okay yeah, so I uh, think about like if there's work stress or like someone's upset with me or what's happening with this project or this is coming off the rails or whatever, realizing that no matter what, like the things that really, really matter uh, are going to be with me and I everything's going to be okay. Because if I get wrapped up and really wrapped up in work stress, which I've done way too many times, that's when there's not enough of me to go around. That's when I get off work and dinner with the family I'm in my head or like, I'm not really present with my kid or, you know, it's, and it sucks. It's, it's terrible. And it, and ultimately, you know, this isn't, this isn't the most important thing in, in life. It's very important, my job, but uh, you know, there are other things that really matter most. Well, that's interesting too. So how, you know, I think a big problem that a lot of folks are having these days is no separation between work and home. 
right? And I know yeah. for myself, for a fact, I'll literally work till seven o'clock. I'll hear the dinner bell downstairs and I won't have that decompression time, that time in the commute, that time in the car, that time, I don't know if you take the BART, wherever you go, right? Like, yeah. you know, that time to decompress and say, I'm done with work for the day and I'm going home. Like, how do you manage that? How do you give yourself like that minute to breathe and, and shift into family mode? I mean, that's when I do the literally the 15 minutes of that's yoga when you do it. outside. Yeah. On, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll just be like, hey, I'll, I'll be, you know, we'll get done in a minute. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> no. But it, it, I'm the same. I mean, I didn't mind sitting in a little bit of traffic because I would just detach, you Fine. know, I can uh, unwind and it, it, it's, a, it's a good thing. So I didn't mind it. I didn't mind it. You know, when I was yeah. in the city, you know, it was tough. Brendan, what are you scared of? Oof, these days? There's, a, there's a lot that I'm scared of. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, everything that's going on is a little scary. I mean, I think it's it's very very unknown. Um, I'm probably most scared that I can't be as present as I know I can be. I mean, back to, you know, back to the earlier commentary. Uh, and I want to be really vigilant about that because I can't help myself. I can't help my son. I can't be there for my wife the way I want to be. I can't be the friend I want to be if I'm fully consumed with um, my ego getting wrapped up in things, um, fears around my ego get wrapped up in things. So, so my biggest fear is probably not being present of mind, being spiritually, physically, mentally healthy. Cause I know when I, when that, and I've had those periods in my career for sure. Like I've gotten, well. Yeah. And it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. You think, you know, you, you really get wrapped around the axle about things that really don't matter. Um, and more broadly than that, you know, I, I fear not having peace in the world. I mean, that's definitely frightening. Scary. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's sh let's shift to some more positive conversation yeah, here. Um, you know, I, I I'm approaching almost a hundred shows of 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 the podcast here, Congrats. and it's really thank you. And it's been a my masterclass. It's been my MBA, and I've been lucky to interview amazing folks like yourself who have incredible careers and experiences. So I'd love to ask a couple of questions here. What is the single greatest piece of it? And I ask this question to every guest. What is the single greatest piece of advice that you've ever received that you take action on every single day? <clears throat> well, there's, uh, I mean, there's something around sort of the idea that of keep showing up, you know, or whatever the, whoever said Woody Allen or someone said, you know, half a life or where 90% is just, is just showing up. Um, that sounds super duper basic, right. but, but I think I've done a decent job of that in the career context, because even on awful days, bad stretches of work, like days, I didn't want to do it. I still get up and, and did it. So, so that, um, this, this advice that Jeff Weiner gave me, um, I think someone passed on to him, but he, there are these sort of five keys of uh, keys to happiness. And one of them is being a spectator to your thoughts, especially in times of stress. That's something I think about. I take action every day. Some days I fail at it. Um, but if I can separate myself from like how I'm, how I'm feeling and step back from it, I find that I can, get through things. And then another one that I try to act on every day is, uh, I'd rather be, it's more important to be loving than it is to be right. Uh, and I think, you know, any, anyone in a, a relationship, I mean, there are those times where like you want to be right and, but being loving is the most important thing. So those are a couple that kind of keep me those rolling. Are fantastic. No, those are, those are absolutely fantastic. And, um, 
you know, we, we've all been going through a lot the last, the last three months. And I I'm asking everybody like about this, this concept of silver linings. There are things that we think from the outside look terrible. They look awful, but you know what? Like, Hey, the last three months, guess what? We're all closer with our families. We're all trying new things. Yep. We're doing things. So I'd love if you could share a personal silver lining and a professional silver lining that you've experienced over the last hundred days. Personal silver lining for sure. What you, what you just said. I mean, the number of, we haven't we haven't ordered food like ordered out since I don't know mid March or something. So made meals every single day and sat down together as a family and had meals every single day. Um, there's no question we'll look back and and say, "Wow, 2020! Remember all that time we had together?" I know that that will happen. So I feel that's been a silver lining and continuing to operate that way. That 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 is a positive. Um, and then professional silver lining is i think the changes that are afoot and happening around racial injustice um and even in you know the work context uncomfortable conversation difficult topics hard things happen um but i feel i feel op- optimistic i mean i feel weird saying that in the midst of this but i think these conversations are ones that i haven't seen happening in my lifetime so I think I think we're I think we're beyond an inflection point. I think we're definitely in an inflection point. So those are the the two that I think about. And I mean, I think your questions are good. Like act on every day. I want to make sure I'm sort of acting positively on both of those things every day. That's tremendous. And last but not least, you know, as we talked about throughout this conversation, not every day is, is going to be amazing, right? You're you're going to be in a tough spot. You're going to be up against the wall. You're going to be having these difficult conversations. Maybe you have to let people go, which is one of the hardest things for any hiring manager to do. And then on the flip side, right, you're having amazing conversations. You're seeing change. You're hiring great people, and you're making a difference in this world. So when you're down at your lowest and you need to pull yourself up and in the same breath, when you want to show gratitude and just appreciation for everything amazing that's happening in the world, Brenda. Brown, what is your North Star? My North Star? <clears throat> Probably more important to be loving than right. I mean, that, that, that propels me forward and keeps me grounded in that. Um, I mean, whatever, to, uh, not, even a, not even LinkedIn examples, but like in work wrapped around the axle is some political going on. You want, you're, you want to mix it up and get into it. Like, I mean, just the, the stuff that happens in the workplace, um, even in those situations where I'm super stressed, trying to make sure in, in my, in the, in the right context, I'm loving and positive. Um, and I would say historically, you know, if you interviewed me 10 years ago, upbeat, positive guy, but in the back of my mind, I'm like anyone who's super positive all the time, I would question, I'd be like, why are they so positive all the time? Where are they on? And, and now I have a lot of respect for people that are truly positive all the time. Even if it seems like, whoa, they're over the top positive. I have nothing but respect for that. And life is just way too short, unfortunately, for all of us. Um, so I'm trying to make sure I, any learnings I have, I put into practice. And I think being loving over being right, it sounds super simple, but like, you know, next time you're super stressed and in, in a relationship with someone and you want to be right, ask yourself, do you need to be right? Yeah. Love it. So. Brenda Brown, thank you for spending time with us today. I certainly appreciate you. Where could folks find you? Where could they catch up with you? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn anytime. It's Brendan Brown, Brown with an E on the end. You can also check out some of my music if you want. You can check out Both Hands, which is an album under DJ Blue, 
another shameless plug and put out another album time, this man. year. So, uh, so both hands by DJ blue. And then I've also got an album called insomniac stargazer under the handle, the real blue. Okay. You're going to so, have to link me to these so I can link it when we drop the show. I will do that. <laughs> Brendan Brown. Thank you again. I greatly appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Adam. Appreciate it. Hold on one second. And everyone listening and following along, thank you for joining us. Please be sure to catch us on all your social media channels. And you could always catch up on the podcast, www.thepodcast.com. Remember, take care of each other, wash your hands, stay six feet apart, and catch us next week for another great episode of The Podcast. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode jam-packed with more incredible humans. For more info, please visit www.nhptalentgroup.com.